Well, good morning. It's my pleasure to welcome you to worship here at Central, where we seek transformation through the renewing work of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've been with us for a while, you noticed this fall we did a series called Life by Design, where we examined what does it mean to be made in God's image, from womb to the grave, to be made with dignity and glory in God's image, made to represent Him in this world. And this this spring, after Christmas, we're doing part two of that Life by Design series, asking what does it look like for a community of image bearers of God to live together? What it looks like is a community that's regulated by the Ten Commandments. Last week, Pastor Charles led us in a study of the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. He laid out for us what idolatry is. It's anything that's placed in God's spot in our heart, something that we depend upon for an ultimate sense of meaning or significance or well-being or joy. Whatever thing we lean upon for that in our lives has become an idol to us. It's a counterfeit savior in our lives. And so we come to the second commandment today and see that our liberator and our lawgiver takes another step. Commandment one tells us we must not worship false saviors, but commandment two tells us we, that we must not worship the true Savior falsely. We're not only to worship and serve the right God, but we are to worship Him in the way that He desires to be worshiped. What this second commandment forbids is making images of God that or draws us into worship them. This really isn't about art. It really isn't forbidding making beautiful things, making beautiful images in art. The problem is that sometimes we create images either with our hands or with our minds that draw us into worship them as if those were God. And it's dangerous. It's a dangerous path to walk down. Let's pray as we turn our minds and our hearts to Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we ask that you would send your spirit and open our hearts that we might behold Jesus, the one who loves us and has given himself for us. And Lord, we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and redeemer. And we ask this in the name of the living Lord Jesus. Amen. Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. Hear God's word. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God will stand forever. There's a great story in Matthew chapter 22 where some hypocrites come and question Jesus and try to trap him. That happened quite a lot in Jesus's ministry. And on this occasion, they came to him trying to butter him up with flattery. They said, teacher, we know that you teach things truly, and we know that you don't care what people think about you. And then came their question. So tell us, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Now, this was a trap, because if 
Jesus sided with Caesar and it is lawful to pay taxes, then they would believe that he doesn't care about the kingdom of God. But on the other side, if he sided with God and against Caesar, he would be counted as a revolutionary, open to arrest and punishment. It was, it was a brilliant trap they laid for Jesus. But Jesus asked them for a coin. He said, can you give me one of those? And whose likeness is on that coin? And they said, well, it's Caesar's likeness on the coin. And Jesus returned it and said, give back to Caesar the things that are his, things that have his image on them, and give to God what belongs to him, we who have his image on us. The question Jesus is asking is, Caesar gets a coin, but what does God get? What does God receive from we who are made in his image, who, who bear his image? What does God get from us? We see in the second commandment is the Lord is to receive worship. The Lord is to receive service of our whole lives, our whole being to worship and serve him. And what I'd like for us to consider as we study the second commandment this morning is the rule and the reasons. What does it really mean to keep the second commandment and what are the reasons why? So let's go in that order first. What is the rule? What's the command? It's a fairly simple command. Don't make for yourself an image of God to worship it. Don't fashion something with your hands or something even with your minds and treat it as if that is God. In other words, don't think that you're worshiping or you are serving me by worshiping that image. Thing you made is not and cannot be anything like me. He's incomprehensible. He is majestic and we can't be contained in some image that we produce. Now, Maybe you hear that command and you think, well, that's well and good for maybe for people in other cultures where there are statues and, and idols and things like that, but it really doesn't have any relevance to my modern 21st century American life. We don't worship statues here. Not so fast. When we think about the reasons why people made images, what was their underlying motivation, what they, were they trying to see happen? then we might see that we have a whole lot more in common with them than we may at first think. How? Well, idols, making images, is a means of attempting to control God, trying to manipulate God for our purposes, to get him to do what we want, to use his divine power for my plan. That's one of the underlying motives of idolatry. You recognize that in your own heart and life? Most ancients, and certainly modern people today, didn't really think that there was a deity that lived inside this block of wood or this, this thing of stone that they carved with their hands, but rather that thing represented the power of that deity. And so if they had that image or that statue, in, in some way it put that God's power at their disposal. Like a good luck charm or a, uh, if, if I have it or if I touch it or if I acknowledge this idol, then somehow I'm able to wield this God's power for my own purpose, for my own plan. You might remember the, an occasion in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel 4 where Israel had this happen to them. They were going up in a battle against the Philistines and they carried the ark as a representation of all of God's power, the, the throne of the living God who ruled among his people. Well, somehow they got in their minds that as long as we have this object 
to represent the authority of God among us, then we can use it to our advantage. If, as long as we carry this ark with us, when we go out into battle, this, this thing associated with God's power, then, then we can't fail. Just because we have this manifestation of God's power on our side and for our plan. But if you remember that story from 1 Samuel 4, you remember that the Philistines destroyed the Israelite army, killed 30,000 of those soldiers that day because Israel presumed on God's power, trying to control him as if they have this thing to represent him. He must follow their design, their plan, and their desires, but... Friends, God will not be controlled. The living God will not be conformed to our purposes and our plan, that Old Testament story. Maybe you remember the terrific 1980s movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark. We saw the ark in there and interestingly, the Nazis thought if they had that ark, they, they could be unconquerable as long as they have this power of God represented among them. It's ironic that it was the power of the Jewish God that would give them the ability to destroy, but that's another thing. Presumed upon the power of God. If I have this object, then I can wield divine power for my purposes. Old Testament story, a great 80s movie, but do we do that now? Do we do that in our lives today? I think sadly, sometimes we do. Because sometimes we use worship as a means to negotiate with God. God, I'm here at this church. I've come to church today. I've been, I went, even went to Sunday school today. So I'm expecting a blessing today. I'm trying to think if I've got this thing, if I've done this thing for God, then then he might owe me. Or God, um, we, you, you're, I've served you. I've given myself to you. I've sacrificed for you. I've been faithful to you. So now I'm expecting you to be faithful to me in return. Sometimes we treat God as if he's like one of those old bubblegum machines. You remember the machine that you put a coin in and you turn the little crank and out pops the bubblegum at the bottom? Sometimes we treat God like he's like that. I put in the coin of my prayer or my obedience or the ministry that I've done and we turn the crank on our prayer life and out should pop God's power to do what I want him to do, to take care of me in the way I expect him to take care of me. We treat him like we can control him or manipulate him for what we want to see happen. Or some icons or prayer cards from some brothers and sisters from a Catholic background who were among us today. Maybe you've looked at those prayer cards or shrines or other things as, as if I perform this act with these icons, then I can incline God to bless me. Or even better, maybe I can, can control that God must bless me as long as I have this in my life. That really is turning God into an image when we're trying to control God, we're trying to manipulate for our purposes, for my designs. We also do it sometimes with our parenting. God, I did it all right. I read all the right books. I raised my kids God's way. And you're supposed to keep your end of the bargain, God. I, I did it all right. I did everything that was expected of me. And God, your end of the bargain is you're supposed to keep my kids out of trouble. You're the one who's supposed to keep my kids from wandering away from the faith like other people might do because I did it right, God. He's 
like a bubblegum machine. I did my part, I'm gonna turn the crank and God, out should pop your part. We try to control him or manipulate him or even in our hardship or in our suffering, sometimes you're saying, Lord, I've done so much for your kingdom. I've, I've served you in so many ways. I've been so faithful and I've expected you would be faithful to me in return. Really, we're turning God into an image as if we have this object, if we have this service, if we have this act, then we can hang on to it as if it gives us the privilege of wielding God's power for our plan, for our desire. But friends, we don't need an object. We don't need a lucky rabbit's foot. We don't need an icon to try to contain and control God's power. We don't have to treat God like he's some accessory in our life. He's something just to beautify our lives. We don't have to treat him that way because we have Jesus himself. We have the God who took on flesh and took on our sin so that by the power of his grace, he might forgive us and set us free from our enslavement to sin and his blessing, his reconciliation would come pouring into our lives. Do you realize, friends, that God already uses his power for you? His resurrection power is given to you. If you've trusted the Lord Jesus, God is causing all things to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. You don't need an image to control God because God in his grace already wants to bless you. He wants to offer you his favor. You don't need an idol to incline God to you because in Christ he already is inclined to you. He already desires to bless you. He gave his son for you. He gave his son that you might be reconciled to him, joined to him in fellowship, belonging to him. You don't have to control him. Because our God is good all on his own. Our God is committed to you all on his own because we belong to him as his dearly loved people. One of the motives underneath idolatry is trying to control God. Do you see that in your own life like I see it in mine. It's another motive or another desire in idolatry and it is to be used as a means to improve on God. Maybe I can make him a little bit better in my mind somehow. Look again at verse 4. It says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. It's interesting, we don't make it for ourselves. something that comes out of our imagination, some image that's produced for, from within to try to fashion a God that might be more acceptable to us in one way or another. And we do that, frankly, because God in his words sometimes is a God that we find distressing. He's distressing, especially when he's constantly contradicting us constantly correcting us, calling us to something better than the way that we're living, when oftentimes we merely want a God who's just going to affirm us. Affirm what I'm doing. Affirm me just as I am. Don't ask me to change. Don't ask me to grow. Sometimes we think we're going to improve on God's character and make him the kind of God that I might like better. Maybe we expect him to be more predictable. If, if you would just be predictable, God, then you would be great. Or we try to make him uh, to have plans that are understandable to us. 
Lord, just make your way plain. I just want to know how I'm going to get from here to there. I don't want to have to walk by faith. I want to be able to walk by sight to see all the steps that I'm supposed to take. God, if, if you would be a God that's like that, that shows me what you're doing, oh, you would be a great God. It's not that we want to wholesale remake him, but we just want to do nips and tucks here and there to make him just a little bit better, improve on his character a little bit. The deist, skeptic, and no friend of Christianity, Voltaire famously said, in the beginning, God made man in his own image, and man has been trying to return the favor ever since. Sometimes we fashion a God who's a whole lot more like us, and we find that kind of God more palatable, more acceptable, less demanding. Do you want a God whom you imagine him to be? Or does your life hunger for the God who is there? Some have compared this to a husband who might steadfastly proclaim to his wife, I love you, I want you, I want no one but you. But since we're talking, um, I might find you more attractive if you would maybe cut your hair the way that my college girlfriend cut her hair because and if you wore clothes like she wore then then I would really really find you You're, you would be the best just a little bit of improvement it would be wonderful or and since since we're on this subject if it would be even better if our personalities could align a little bit better like maybe if you were more outgoing like my second girlfriend in college then, then you would be terrific. I mean, it would be wonderful. I, I would want you and no one but you. And he goes down the lines of all the ways that his wife needs to improve to have his affection. Don't we begin to wonder, you don't love this woman at all, do you? You have an idea in your mind. There's some ideal spouse that you've created in your mind and you've fallen in love with that ideal, but the real wife, the real one who's in front of you, the the gift of the human being in front of you, you really don't love her at all. You love someone whom you imagine her to be. And we do that with God, friends. We try to improve on him. We, 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 We try to improve on a God who would, somebody I would want to be with, somebody whom I feel like he should be. Somebody a lot more like us, frankly. Do you want the God who is there? or the one who might be a little bit more like you and me, but just a little bit more so. Sometimes we reinvent the Lord by trying to make him fit more with our modern world, our modern sensibilities and accommodate our culture's trends. Someone who's a lot more understanding and flexible like we are perhaps. Like Lord, I know you talk about holiness a whole lot, but I'm not sure that you really mean that, do you? I mean to expect us to live according to those exacting standards. I mean, you're, you're more forgiving than that. You're more gracious than that. We, we all know you don't mean it when you talk about living according to a sexual ethic where there's a man and a woman who are married together and sex is only expressed inside that covenant of relationship. We know that's stick in the mud, God. You, you really don't expect that anymore because you are, you're a God of grace. You're not a God of that kind of truth. But he is. He does call us to live according to his standards of holiness. He is a God of grace, but he's also a God full of truth. 
Or maybe we try to improve on God by thinking that this God that I'm inventing would be perfectly fine with me being in control of my own life or this sovereign self. God's fine with that because he and I both know that I can rule my life better. He and I both know that, that I know best what's good for me here and I'm just going to let him stay out of it and Lord, you just respond to, you just respond to how I want to live my life and stop calling me to this demanding life of discipleship because what I really want is a God who's affirming me. Somebody, God's just going to pat me on the head. I'm glad you're here. Glad to be with you like a, like a BFF. He's never going to call you out. Never point out what's wrong. A God of self-esteem. Rather than finding our true identity of being joined together to Jesus through faith and having our lives grow to be conformed to be more like Christ rather than us making him to be more like us. We improve on him thinking it's going to make God a little bit better. Or maybe we imagine him to be a cosmic Santa Claus. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He'll find out who's naughty or nice. Sometimes we think that this God is perpetually looking over our shoulder, looking for ways that we screw up, taking notes so that he can rob blessings of our lives, get us back. He's this legalistic, highly critical kind of God. And if I want him to love me better, then I have to be good. If I'm good like this Santa God wants me to be good, then everything's going to be great. But if I can't muster up the ability to be good enough, then I'm toast. Friends, that's not the biblical God. It's not an improvement on who this living God is. God tells us, he describes himself as merciful and gracious. That being merciful is, is him not giving us what we deserve. We deserve condemnation, but in Christ, since we belong to God through faith, he doesn't give us what we deserve, but instead he's gracious. And that means he gives us the opposite of what we deserve. He pours blessing and favor on our lives. He he forgives our rebellion, our iniquity and sin because Jesus has given his life for us. Because we're joined together with him. We belong to Jesus. Friends, that God of, I've got to get it together and then you'll love me, it's not the biblical God. That's not the life we're called to. We have a God who is merciful and gracious, who knows the worst about us, and yet he loves us anyway. Because he loves us in Christ. We don't have any need to improve on God's character. We don't have any need to try to control our God, because he's already good to us. He's incalculably good to us in Christ. That's what the rule is, but why? What's the reason for this command? Why does he tell us that that is all important? Look again at verse five. He says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, when you hear jealousy, you might think of it in the same category as envy. Wanting something that doesn't rightfully belong to you, that's, that's envy. But that's not the, way, not the way the word jealousy is being used here. When it describes God as a jealous God, he's talking about a proper desire for people who do belong to him. 
He's our creator. He's our redeemer. He's our liberator. He's our lawgiver. We belong to him. And that jealousy is an expression of his devotion to you. His purpose, his intention to guard his love for you and for me as his people, as his dearly loved, preciously bought with the cost of the price of his own son's blood, his jealous love for you is his commitment to you and to me. He's jealous that you and I experience his kindness. He's jealous that we would know a kind of fellowship with him, a relationship of grace with a God who treats us better than we deserve to be treated. He's jealous for you to know that. Old Testament scholar Christopher Wright has written this. He says, a God who is not jealous would be as contemptible as a husband who didn't care whether or not his wife was faithful to him. Jealousy is a, a love. It's a commitment to what is ours. What, and we belong to him. That Lord, is, his jealousy is his love. Is God protecting his own people? That's what his jealousy is. He's a jealous God because he cares for you. He loves you. He adores you. What, imagine this scenario. What husband would encourage his wife to date other women? Isn't that silly? Because marriage is a, a bond of a husband and wife together. They, and to suggest that, honey, it doesn't matter, you can... Go date whomever you want. It's not going to bother me at all. Knock yourself out, honey. Wouldn't that leave her wondering, do I mean anything to you? You're so willing for us not to have an exclusive relationship. Do I mean so little to you that you're willing to, to treat me like this? I'm not sure that you really love me at all. See, a holy jealousy, a love, a holy jealous love that God has for us protects what is precious to him. And you are who are precious to him. Remember that kind of fierce love is described all over the Bible. God's love for you as his people is a spousal love. It's a, a protecting love. It's a love for you, his beloved, like a husband's love for a wife. All through the Bible, God's love is described that way. And you and I are described as his beloved bride. We are the bride of Christ. And he longs to shower you with his affection. That's how he feels about you. Or think about the way that Song of Solomon describes it. About a husband being completely smitten in love for his spouse. It's God's love for you is like that. That he calls you the, the bride of Christ. The one whom his affections are geared toward. Or, or Revelation 21. Where we're described as the bride beautifully adorned for her husband. The living God coming down out of heaven. That's how God feels about you. So many of us go through life hoping, wanting somebody to cherish us. We want somebody to see us and, and adore who we are. Not to turn away from us when they see what's on the inside, but be drawn to us to love us with a passionate kind of affection, a committed kind of affection, an affection that can't be broken. We, so many people live their lives looking for it. We search for it in all kinds of relationships. And God has given it to you in Christ. Listen, I want you to be very careful to hear this. That if you trusted Jesus, if you belong to God as your Redeemer, you are cherished by the true and living God. 
You are adored by this God who has a burning, passionate love for you, an exclusive intensity of love for you, a never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love for you, even on your worst day. Even if you've fallen back into old patterns of sin, God is wild about you. The real God loves the real you. You don't have to clean yourself up for the Lord to love you. He loves you perfectly in Christ. The real God sees you. The real God loves you in Christ, even on your worst day, even if your life is falling apart right now, even if you have regressed into old patterns of sin, the living God has not stopped loving you because you belong to him through Christ. You are the bride of Christ. He has a jealous love for you. Jesus said, Caesar gets the coin. Caesar gets what's stamped with his image. What does the living God get? He gets our love in response as his image bearers. People made to be like him. After all, forbidden from making images of God because he already has an image. And that's you. He made you in his image. He fashioned you to be like him, to to represent him. From the womb to the grave, we are made to be like God. We bear his image. We represent him in this world. We are filled with dignity and glory because of the one we image. Even though we've fallen into sin and rebellion, the Son of God took on flesh to come for you. As Colossians 1 puts it, the fullness of God dwelling in bodily form. Jesus, the perfect image of God, took on flesh to rescue you and me, free us from our enslavement to sin on his cross, and to restore us. He has come into your life to restore you, to grow you, to be more like him as he designed you and me to be. And it's all out of love. He sees us as we are, and he steps closer to us to bend everything in this world for our good because he so loves us. He loves the people who sometimes treat him like he's not good enough for us. And yet that same God went to his death out of a covenant promise of love for people like you and me. How can I know? How can I know that he really loves the real Me, the me he sees on the inside. How can I know that he's good, not just in general, but good to me? How can I know that when God looks inside my heart, he won't turn away from me? How do I know? Because that same God said from the cross, it is finished. All of our judgment, all of our condemnation is over now and forever, because Jesus bore it for you and for me. If you want to know how deeply God loves you, if you want to know the depth of his commitment to you, look again at the cross, where his love for his people was set on display. Love for you right now. Love for you today. Love for you forever. That will not change. 
because it has a jealous love for his blood-bought people. Give your heart to him. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful that you love us like that. Sometimes it's overwhelming to think, to realize that we have a God who made us and who saved us, who sees us as we are. You see the truth about my life. You see the things that lurk in my heart that I hope no one else sees. You know it all, and yet, Lord, you've moved toward us to forgive and to restore Not because we can control you, not because we can invent some God in our mind who's better than you are, but because you love us. Lord, I ask that you would flood our hearts with that sense of your affection for us as your people. That you have laid hold of us and you'll never let go. Lord, assure us as we Take a long look at the cross. Assure us, Lord, that there's nothing that we could do that would make you turn away from us because you've given Christ for us. All of our sin has been paid for. Our evil has been broken. The corruption in our lives has been shattered and you, living Lord, are restoring us to be like you. Lord, give us hope. Give us a sense that we can't do anything but offer our hearts back to you who have loved us so fully and so completely. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.